Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast feed on the New Books Network. My name is Sydney, and today I will be interviewing Dr. Khan on his new book, um, Development Economics, which is a new textbook coming from Taylor and Francis. Um, Dr. Khan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank you and Marshall Poe for this opportunity. Marshall is a lovely person. Um so I guess we'll just get right into it and have you tell me how it is you came to write this book, maybe where the inspiration came from. And if you want to tell a little bit about your background, um, that'd be lovely too. Okay. So I'll start with a little background. Uh, I originate from Pakistan. I was doing graduate uh, studies at the University of Michigan, where I met my current wife. This is about 40 years ago. And since she's from uh, Indiana, uh, it was hard for her to settle in Pakistan with me for long periods. So we've been switching back and forth. Uh, So I taught, I uh, did uh, two stints in Pakistan, one at the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. And then the second one about a decade later at the Sustainable Development Policy Institute. Uh, And in between and after, I taught in various U.S. uh, universities and colleges and uh, always uh, development economics. So that's by way of background. Now, next you asked me about how I came to write this book. Um, So the past, uh, I'd say, uh, last between 2004 and 2016, I was teaching at Mount Holyoke College. And uh, I wasn't able to find a book that I was entirely satisfied with. And it was actually when I decided to retire that I thought, well, maybe it's time to write a book that I might have wanted to teach from. And uh, That's when this idea for writing this book uh, originated. I felt dissatisfied, particularly uh, with the the lack of alternative approaches in the way current textbooks were structured. They seemed to be very topical, somewhat sterile, whereas uh, my view was that I could rattle off at least 10 alternative approaches uh, from developmentalist, neoclassical slash neoliberal, neo-Marxist, structuralist, dependency, new developmentalist slash new structuralist, basic human needs slash human development, slash sustainable development, political economy of development, institutional. So there are many different approaches, and I thought that they weren't being given enough play in the way current textbooks were structured. They tended to be, as I said, somewhat sterile and also very topical, agriculture, industry, trade, public finance. And and when they're structured so, I felt that they were ignoring interlinkages between various topics. They ignored uh, a very rich, institutional, multidisciplinary, and interdisciplinary insights that come from an alternative approaches uh, view of development economics. So the insights, they're valid insights from all approaches. And I thought that these insights come very organically. Uh, They unfold organically when you give play to the debates that emerge from alternative approaches. And so that's I wrote a proposal, uh, Taylor and Francis Rutledge um, seemed to like it. And and the first year after my retirement, I I started working. It took me about three years to do this. And as I started writing, other issues cropped up. For example, I thought that uh, 
most of these approaches have a theory of development and a theory of underdevelopment that is sometimes implicit, but sometimes very overt. And so the way I've structured the book is that I make sure that these mirror images of, of underdevelopment and development come out clearly. I also felt that when you don't do an alternative approaches, uh, view of the field, then sometimes the waters get muddied. I'll give you an example. One fairly recent textbook uh, gave credit to the World Bank for, for industrial policy. And this was very strange to me because industrial policy actually evolved from challenging the theory of comparative advantage in trade theory and proffering an alternative, which is dynamic comparative advantage and industrial policy was a way for attaining this. Um, I also discovered that people were not being careful in the way they define terms. Uh, for example, for me, development was about structural transformation and it applied to low and low middle income countries. And people used all kinds of terms like developed, underdeveloped, north, south, uh, emerging. And, and so I picked one term that uh, is attributed to uh, Nerkse, who came up with this in the 1950s, low, low middle income country, middle income, upper middle income, and high income country. And, and these are very neutral terms. Uh, and so I felt that data has been uh, published uh, uh, for these classifications. So that made it very easy to, to work uh, with, with, with this classification. I also thought it was important to uh, focus on low-income and low-middle-income uh, countries because these are the countries that are actually engaged in trying to attain catch-up growth. And, and I've devoted a separate chapter to middle-income countries and how some countries can get trapped in the middle income. And this is a fairly well-known phenomena now. So in the transition from one part of the book uh, to, to another part of the book, um, I, I go into why countries might not, why, why they may stay stuck in the middle income. And then, so, so talking about the structure of the book, I've, I've got introductory material um, where I focus on method. I have a whole chapter on data because uh, it's important uh, to be clear on where the numbers come from when people are presenting evidence, how, the, how that is constructed. And then the second part uh, goes into the approaches. And these approaches then lead into debates. That's part three of the book and the debates on interesting issues like foreign aid, foreign direct investment. But, but this evolves then from very lively debates, which I found that students think of as very engaging and entertaining also. And I, I kept their attention when, when doing things in this way. Uh, I also felt that there are some important cross-country, cross-cutting themes I should, that go throughout the whole book. Things like gender, uh, ecology, social justice, they often get ghettoized. I carried them through and ecology in particular, I thought was very important. So two of the debates on sustainable agriculture and sustainable industry uh, carry over, and, and this is particularly important now with, with climate change. So, so the last, these two last two chapters before the concluding chapter uh, dwell on these issues. And I feel that conventional textbooks also give them short shrift. Uh, I also thought that it was important upfront to talk about methodology and how the different approaches have different views on methodology and how they analyze and collect data. So, and then I'll say one final word, which is that particularly when you look at data and analysis, it's really very difficult to establish consensus in development uh, economics. And so 
I felt that one lesson we as scholars and students need to keep in mind is, is humility, uh, because we need to know that uh, the conclusions, th there's very, very little we really know for sure, uh, and, and therefore the need for humility. Um, in the last chapter, I give play to equity uh, as a foundation for catch-up growth rather than inequality. Uh, this may be a little controversial, uh, but I think that is a rather lengthy discussion of why I wrote this book. Um, it summarized perfectly all of the uh, things that I got out of the book, which is which is good. Um, so as we start diving in, let's start with um, something you talked about a little bit before. Um, you actually start the book um, explaining to people what development economics is. And then something I thought was really interesting is to try to convince your reader, not simply dictate to them, but almost convince us that there should be something called development economics and that there is a set of countries that are lower, lower income countries that face something, some different set of challenges from the rest of the countries, and that thus we should treat them separately, which is something that was sort of dictated to me as a student, not explained and argued to me. And I really appreciated that. Would you elaborate on how and why you decided to do that? Yes. The reason I did it is because uh, when I was going through uh, graduate school, there was this sense, I think that was the time that um, neoclassical e economics and the derivative neoliberalism that draws on neoclassical economics was in ascendancy. And there was some of the earlier um, development economists like, uh, like Bauer and Lal, Deepak Lal, P.T. Bauer, had argued that, look, humans behave essentially very similarly no matter, no matter where they are. And since human motivation is very similar, then there is a universal human behavior and therefore a, a universal economics that uh, is derived from that. And this seemed reductionist to me because then the economics was all right consumer behavior producer behavior uh, and and okay so we can talk about market structure in the macro side we can talk about uh, things like macro stabilization but essentially that's what this was militating to whereas there was a very rich uh, important contribution from many scholars on on initial conditions in low and low middle income countries that were entirely different. Um, the history of colonialism, neo-colonialism uh, played into, I'm not saying that these necessarily have to be excuses for and, and theories of underdevelopment, but they did make the initial conditions very different. And when you look at some scholars like Rustow, uh, who have a descriptive framework of, of uh, history. And essentially, we're arguing that if we study how current high-income countries develop, then, then we can understand how low and low-middle-income countries are going to do it. And because they started with such different initial conditions, that didn't seem to make sense. And then there were scholars like Joe Stiglitz, who looked at uh, Verily very elaborate structure uh, set of market failures. Um, and there are a whole plethora of them um, in the product market and labor markets, uh, factor markets um, in low and low middle income countries that didn't apply to high income countries that had established an infrastructure uh, where Keynesian economics made sense, where thinking about um, aggregate demand side problems made sense. But uh, when you don't have that foundation and the infrastructure, then you have to think about the establishing that infrastructure and, uh, and the foundation first uh, before you come to uh, thinking of uh, Keynesian economics uh, as, as explaining very much. Uh, 
uh, in terms of unemployment. So unemployment uh, was really a structural issue. So these were some of the issues that distinguished uh, low, low middle income countries from high income countries. And I go into an, a whole set of them to try and explain uh, why it seems that, that there uh, is something that we can call development economics, and which gave me permission to proceed. And I, and I also thought that the method that uh, was very different. For, to give you a couple of examples, when, when you're working with mainstream economics, then you assume um, property rights as given, you assume given institutions, you assume given structures, and then you can optimize. Whereas development seems so much about structural transformation, which meant changing institutions, changing structures, challenging those rather than taking them for granted. And if that's how you think of development, then you really are in a different realm uh, from mainstream economics. I hope that explains uh, some of what I've uh, elaborated on in the book. It it does. Um, real quick, before I get to my next question, would you explain for our audience, um, there is a little bit of a generational gap in the field of economics between what um, scholars who actually lived through the Washington consensus and sort of a real neoliberal turn that maybe started in the 1980s um, say about mainstream economics and what feels mainstream to someone who's 21 and entering the field. Um, with you know lots of people who are much more open to considering new or different ideas than mm -hmm. you know heterodox scholars might have faced twenty years ago. So could you actually just explain for our audience what you mean by mainstream economics? Um, and maybe you did it in the book, and I thought it was really useful. Right. So and and that is why looking at this in a history of economic thought uh, and and historical frame. Uh, I think is helpful for students. So in the 40s, late 40s, uh, early 50s, you had uh, what we call the pioneers of, of development economics. And these would include people like Rosenstein Rodin, um, um, Arthur Lewis, uh, Alfred Hirschman. And these were uh, the scholars who had a classical economics training, but were very uh, open to uh, neoclassical economics. They had a training in both fields and they drew on both of them when coming up with the theorizing. Um, now, at that time, I think one prominent dissenter was, was P.T. Bauer and I've spoken about him already. And, and these, I think these scholars are also somewhat misunderstood. They were viewed as advocates of foreign aid, of planning, of um, being anti-market, promoting uh, import substitution industrialization, uh, and, and uh, being averse to uh, export promotion. And in, in my textbook, I, I challenge these uh, contentions. Uh, but but the big challenge, of course, to their thinking uh, came uh, in in as you say in the in the nineteen eighties, um, but but even before when it appeared uh, that there were a lot of problems. Why was it that so many low income countries were stagnating? Why were they not development developing? And and that is when neoclassical economics came into its own and the derivative, as I said, was uh, neoliberal economics, which was a political philosophy that adopted neoclassical economic tools, both on the micro and micro side, and, and, and tried to give an explanation for stagnation. And essentially the focus was on uh, government failure, and because there was government failure, it was logical then to have a very pro-market approach, get rid of distortions, uh, and, and, and then that was the theory of development, whereas uh, bad government was the theory of underdevelopment. And, and that sort of was when I entered the field. 
And it, it was dismal in a way when I was a graduate student. As I told you, I came from Pakistan, very keen to hope for something that would provide, as I said, hope for, for low-income countries. And it was at this time that alternative explanations started uh, coming about on explaining why newly industrialized countries of East Asia developed. And initially, the explanation seemed to be a, a neoliberal explanation, that these were the countries that believed in macro-stabilization. They got rid of factor market distortions. They opened their economies. They promoted exports. And that explained why there was catch-up growth in these countries. And this was also provided as an explanation, of course, for Japan before them. Uh, before Korea and 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 Taiwan and 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 subsequently Southeast Asian economies like Malaysia, Indonesia, um, and Thailand. And what happened was that an alternative explanation started to emerge in the late eighties and early nineties. And this was scholars like Robert Wade, Alice Amston, uh, and and they uh, and a bit later Hajmun Chang. Uh, Danny Roderick, I would include, as providing an alternative explanation for why East Asian economies developed. And they challenged the neoclassical view on this or the neoliberal view on this. And I have a chapter on this, which I call neo-developmentalism, uh, because they carried developmentalist thought much beyond uh, where where the early developmentalists left it. And I'm not saying any of the scholars that I mentioned call themselves neo-developmentalists, but I think that there is a synthesis that one can call neo-developmentalism. Um, and, and I think that's where we are. I think currently there is this active debate between these two schools of thought. Uh, the hedge, the... I guess the resources and the hegemony uh, or the mainstream, the orthodoxy is neoclassical slash neoliberalism. And, and center, I, I won't say left of center, I would say center, a kind of more pragmatic, eclectical approach is the neo-developmentalist approach. So I think for the current generation, I think this is where we are right now. So, as we're talking about these these main debates, um, and you mentioned the left and right context, and this is not something that's in the textbook, but I think it's important for people who are studying economics to think about, um, and I'm sure you'll have good insights on it. Would you talk about the relationship between these schools um, in what is largely, or what is an academic context that is largely dominated in Western institutions and the political climate that goes on in the wider society, because I mean, development economics, and you did a really good job of capturing this. Does not, as with the rest of economics, does not come out of a vacuum. We do not, you know, go into our some sort of lab, as you might imagine, you know, an analytical chemist to do. Right? These are social ideas that come about in a social context and, and historical context, mm -hmm. and a historical context. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you would sort of fill in the the really rich story you just told with some of the ways in which the field interacts with, I guess, the larger like political and social and historical um, debates that go on in the societies where they come from. I would say that currently the most important debate revolves around climate. And there is, if the, I mean, unlike in development economics, there is a substantial consensus among scientists, natural scientists, on humans being a cause for this unfolding disaster. I'm not, we're not even talking about the future. We're in it. And I feel that that is one place where current textbooks just are behind the curve. And, and so I've given that a lot of play as a recurring theme and also, as I said, in important debates on sustainable agriculture, sustainable industrial development. 
and coming and here you can also come from different perspectives a neoliberal perspective a political economy of development perspective which is left of center uh, you can come at it from a developmentalist perspective which is kind of center and 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 so i, I feel that this is one very important debate i also feel that many times what scholars believe may well be driven by ideology and and that is why i feel that it is important also to give play to the debates that emerge from the left of center such as uh, uh, the dependency school the uh, structuralist school the neo marxist school and uh, they have important insights and in in these debates i i draw on their insights also so so to recap then i think the climate issue is the one i think for this era is probably the most important and i think this is something that development scholars and development textbooks should uh, take head on um and the other issue is how and this is why i go into methodology because how does ideology play into all of this uh, and methodology has important insights uh, in explaining that does that, that do more than answers the question uh, okay and yeah it covered it very well um Thank speaking you. of methodology you cover you dedicated an entire chapter to talking about data and their use in development economics, which is actually the title of the chapter. Um, I was hoping you would just sort of explain maybe strategically why you did that. Um, and also what it is that students typically come in to your class understanding about things like time series and cross-sectional data, um, mm -hmm. what it is that you think that they're lacking that you hope they gain. And then mm -hmm. you even cited Esther, uh, Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee um, who recently made RCTs even more famous. Um, and more mm -hmm. popular. So I was hoping you would talk about um, that that trend and maybe what you think students should know about it. Yes. So evidence is really important, even though we are a social science and not a natural science. Uh, but even, even so, I, I feel it is very important to back arguments with evidence. And, and that carries through as a recurring theme in this textbook, as you may have noticed. But I feel that students should take this with a grain of salt very often. Because when, when I was doing a little bit of computer science in grad school, uh, the person immediately told me, look, garbage in, garbage out. And of course, that applies to our field, that in a way, we can be as good as the information, the way we collect it. I feel other social scientists pay a lot more attention to where the numbers come from. And they spend a lot of time in explaining that, and then they go into the analysis. Whereas I think there is a technique fetish uh, in economics and getting more and more sophisticated in the econometrics that we use uh, is where a lot of scholars come from, and that is also where a lot of the publications come from. And I said, no, look, let's start with where the numbers come from. How are they collected, and where do the errors creep in? Whether we're talking about cross-sectional data, panel data, time series data, RCTs, in all of these, there are various, or, of course, the when there was such a disaffectation with the uh, uh, data that economists use, people came up with alternatives to uh, the participatory approaches in uh, in a whole school of thought emerged in doing qualitative data and qualitative data collection and analysis. So I go through all of these and I, I explain where the errors might creep in, how we can be more careful. And, and when we're doing the analysis, we must always qualify that, look, uh, here are the caveats. And, and so then when, when I go into the various chapters and I'm presenting evidence, I always harken back to this chapter on data and say, keep that in mind. If you're talking about cross-sectional data, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
a lot of the cross-sectional data that very sophisticated, sophisticated econometric techniques uh, utilize really have the unit of observation as one country. Now we know that countries vary a great deal. There is this heterogeneity problem. And yet we're using country as a unit of observation. And, and so if you're trying to explain growth uh, and then we are uh, aggregating capital, which is, has a whole set of problems, you're trying to aggregate labor, which has a whole set of other problems. And then we have these aggregate production functions. It's hard enough estimating production functions for a firm, but trying to do that for a country, well, it's important to present the caveats if one is trying to do that. And, and so I thought I need to make students very alert to, to, be, to interpret the information. And RCTs was another. Uh, Deaton had some very good insights on RCTs and said that, uh, you know, they really are very difficult to generalize from. Uh, and, they could, and they are enormously expensive. Uh, I fielded a proposal once uh, with uh, a co-author, uh, Natasha Ansari, and uh, we, it was a fairly successful proposal. We were wanting to study an alternative microcredit technique in Pakistan. It was uh, in, interest-free. And the people we sent our proposal to said, yeah, this looks good but build in an RCT in, into this proposal and then we'll fund it. And I'm thinking, what? You know, this, this doesn't make sense. I mean, it's putting the cart before the horse. I can think of situations where a natural experiment might make sense, but it doesn't make sense here, uh, given the parameters of the study. And I tried to explain it to them, but uh, we also withdrew our proposal because we, we thought that this is a fad and and now um, uh, you have to be careful when things become fads uh, no matter the authority that is uh, peddling it yeah so just for our listeners so that they understand how excellent that story is essentially telling you to add an rct to something is volunteering to spend more money on that am i correct <laughs> yeah but the, our proposal was five thousand yeah. dollars uh, for this study which was very modest uh we weren't building our time into the study we just wanted some money for field work and and they were willing to give us much much more money if we could convert the proposal into an rct and RCTs can run up to $200,000. And, and I'm thinking, no, we're not going to do that. And ultimately, uh, I got a small grant from the college I was working at then. I put some of my own money into it, and we went ahead and did it anyway. That is actually a really good story in scholarly integrity. Um, but I, I think... Moving on to another uh, topic in your book that I also found really interesting, particularly looking back on how you know I entered this field, um, you talk, you spend some time talking about poverty and different conceptions of poverty. And mm -hmm. if your students are anything like I was, I uh, you know walked in thinking that I had some idea of what poverty was. Poverty was not having something, right? Um, I mean, it sounded pretty simple. Nice. And then, like, I actually distinctly remember my mentor pointing to the back of the room where somewhere on his bookshelf, he had an Amarta Sen book, and he literally made me sit there and read it until I looked up at him and said, oh, okay, I get that this isn't clear now. Um, but would you just talk about some of the conceptions of poverty you have in this book and what you want students to learn and to think about while they're, while they're reading this topic? Sure. So, and poverty and inequality, of course, were the issues that the alternative approaches we're concerned about. So that is the problem. But the reason I elaborated on it is because they, as you said, can be even different perspectives on poverty. There is, of course, the uh, standard way of, of measuring headcount poverty. And um, 
and we explained that. But then there were other ways that, uh, for example, risk and uncertainty um, uh, emerged from some good work that the World Bank and others before them had done uh, using talking to the poor and asking them what they viewed their poverty to be. And very often it was just vulnerability, um, being threatened by landlords, being threatened by goons uh, in, the, in the villages or urban neighborhoods that they were living in. There was a very interesting recent way uh, of thinking about poverty that two scholars came up with and that they called it bandwidth poverty, which is that if the poor are so desperate about meeting ends meet, then really they, they, cog they suffer cognitively in terms of problem solving. And, and cognitively, uh, their problem solving ability varies a great deal between harvest time and, and uh, post-harvest time. And the longer you move away from harvest time and the less money they have, the less their cognitive ability to solve their problems. Uh, their interrelationships between uh, uh, different kinds of poverty, for example, uh, if coping capacity can vary a great deal, and, and sometimes when people are coping, uh, they may sell assets. Uh, uh, which, it, or they might pull out their children from uh, schooling, or they might sacrifice healthcare. And we know intergenerationally this adds to poverty, but this is a coping capacity. And, and this is where the basic human needs approach to poverty made a lot of sense, that it wasn't just enough to think of poverty in terms of calorie and, and caloric intake, but really it needs to be multidimensional. And so the different approaches to addressing poverty alleviation therefore varied a great deal also, depending on how poverty was defined. Perfect. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I'm really, really appreciated seeing that in a textbook on development that didn't lay these things out as if they were obvious, but went through and try to give you, give students different approaches on this. Um, so something in this book that was actually new to me or was interesting to me is you spent in several chapters, there was touching on industrial policy um, mm -hmm. as some, in some ways, a counter option to simply, you know, opening your markets up and cutting government spending and sort of conforming with this idea of a neoliberal economic approach to development. Would you talk about industrial policy, some of the evidence maybe for and against it working, and some of the ways in which students might think about it and um, might think about its pitfalls? Okay. So let's start by assuming that whether countries are going undergoing structural adjustment or opt to do industrial policy, both approaches need reasonably good government. And, and so when those who advocate structural adjustment, the privatization, liberalization, macro stabilization, deregulation, they are assuming reasonably good government. Otherwise, this will not work. And, and their critique of industrial policy really is, oh, yeah, that sounds good in, in, in principle, but in practice, they just don't have the capacity to do this. And, and so the critics sort of said, well, then they don't have the capacity to structurally adjust either. So that's why let's assume reasonably good government. And, and this doesn't have to be across the board. Advocates of industrial policy really look at uh, this in a very nuanced way. And they say some agencies within the government may actually be reasonably good. They may have good tax capacity. Then we'll design industrial policy through the tax uh, subsidy mechanism, or they may have a good uh, ministry of production. We'll work with them. Now, how did this come about? 
in a sense, when I talk to you about scholars coming up with an ex- alternative explanation for the catch-up growth of East Asian economies, Japan uh, uh, and Korea and Taiwan, and, and subsequently other Southeast Asian, Asian economies, one of the things that they observed was that core to their catch-up growth was an active industrial policy with its complements of a technology policy, a competition policy, a trade policy, an employment policy that complemented the industrial policy. And what was industrial policy? Well, industrial policy emerges from this notion of dynamic comparative advantage. These countries were saying, look, we're not going to lock into ourselves into this theory of comparative advantage that you're promoting, uh, which is telling us to specialize in you know, labor-intensive manufactured goods or in primary commodities. Uh, this is also what the British told the Americans to do. And Hamilton was smart and, and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to industrialize. And we're going to have a technology policy. Because if you look at catch-up growth, it's never really happened without countries having a technology and an industrial policy. And dynamic competitive advantage is saying, let's look at what where we need to be. And we know we don't have comparative advantage right now, but we can build it if we muster our resources in a very effective way, just as the Soviet Union mustered their resources towards a space program and put the first uh, human into orbit. Well, this is what they're mustering their resources for. They're saying, we want to be uh, in... Industries where there's technological learning, uh, where there's economies of scale, where there's um, where uh, there's elasticity of demand is going to be high, where there is energy um, uh, intensity is low. So there are a number of factors that they can opt for, and of course, this focus is on quality. and And one criticism of industrial policy is, hey. Governments don't know how to pick winners. And and the counter to that is, we're not picking winners. We know the winners. What we are doing is getting technology off the shelf. We're not at this stage focusing on innovation systems and research and development. We're picking technology off the shelf. But we want to pick these industries because they will promote learning. And they will promote exports. And we need to do these exports because we need foreign exchange to get to the next stage of moving up the technology ladder. So so this set of policies, industrial policy and complementary technology policy and competition policy, was in juxtaposition to structural adjustment, which was the neoliberal approach. And I think this is an important uh, for development economics to, to look at these alternative perspectives. And I'll give you an example. When they look at competition policy, it's it's not antitrust. When they're looking at competition policy, they're saying, look, we need firms to have economies of scale. So we can't have too many firms in the industry. If there are too many firms, they won't have scale economies. And you can't have too few because then you'll have too much market power. And so you know, and they make mistakes sometimes. One crit- criticism of industrial policy is that the Japanese uh, state tried to prevent Honda from coming into, and also Sony, from coming into respective industries. But they got a lot right. And mistakes are inevitable. Uh, if you if you look at the failure rate in industry in the United States, it's uh, over 12%. Uh, so one in 12 firms actually succeed. So it's not 12%, sorry, it's one in 12 actually succeed. So failure is inevitable in the market system. So these are market friendly, but what they do is they use the market as a tool. Uh, And and Robert Wade called this governing the market. So they're not anti-market at all. They're not hostile to the market. They think market is a very important uh, tool for allocating resources, but within a framework because they have broader objectives. That and and this they feel is very important to for catch up growth to happen. And uh, so, 
yeah. You ask me a oh. question, I, I feel like I go on and on and on. No, no, no. That's this pod, That's the point of this podcast. Um, <laughs> right. It's your time to talk. Um, right. One of the things that are strategies that co- countries use to actually engage in this industrial policy, and particularly sometimes to have a technology policy, is to negotiate with MNCs to sign you know, bilateral treaties and to really um, engage in the market for foreign direct investment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a debate over that. And there are pitfalls that go along with that. Um, but you actually, I think, outlined a rather, I guess, optimistic um, approach to this and that there is a lot of room for growth with lower income countries having more leverage than they may think. Um, your mm-hmm. example of this was actually a Ramco. But um, would you mm-hmm. talk about the role that foreign direct investment can play in this and um, how you think the debate around that looks and how you'd like students to think about it? Yes. So so things have changed, um, especially with the coming onto the scene of the WTO and some agreements that countries are now signatory to, like TRIPS and TRIMS, and TRIPS in particular, intellectual property rights that have constrained countries much more in terms of the way they can negotiate with multinationals compared to the way that it could have happened in the past. So, for example, and different countries have had very different approaches. So, for example, Korea was very, very selective in how they negotiated and what they wanted. And and basically, they were looking for technology. They knew they had to pay a price. And and so they optimized for that. Uh, China, of course, uh, uh, has been much more successful because of its huge market and the leverage that it's had. Other countries uh, took a very different approach. But ultimately, the idea was we want technology for our industrial policy. We are going to pay the price, but the price can't be too high. And that's why countries have to be savvy. They, they need to know what they want and the price that they are willing to pay. Uh, and, and this is a heuristic social benefit cost analysis that they can do. Um, and of course, the Aramco example that you gave me and that you cited was an interesting one because the Saudi government nego- hired uh, consultants who knew the oil industry inside out and used them to negotiate with multinationals uh, with them because they knew they didn't have the capacity. So if they're going to negotiate successfully, they're going to have to build the capacity to negotiate invest in that. Uh, otherwise, they're going to be taken for the... Why should multinationals give their technology? I mean, they're in the market there. They don't want more competitors out there. Uh, so, But it's not a zero-sum game. It's you want this, we want this. And they have to be careful because what multinationals now want is to plug countries into value chains. Uh, and And this is where... Uh, Malaysia and uh, and Thailand to some extent got stuck because they negotiated to be in various runs of the value chain, uh, which multinationals outsourced to them. They did the quality control, they did the research and development, and then they got stuck. You can't just only be assembly outlets. You have to be able to move away from that and start with own brand manufacturing and, and move beyond that. And, and that is why low and low middle income countries have to look at, have to be savvy now. And they have to be very cognizant of WTO rules. Lucky for them, uh, high income countries are not taking low income countries and even low middle income countries to task on property rights, much as they are uh, middle-income countries. So they, they do have some negotiating space. So there is something to be gained. I'm not saying, you know, for example, the dependency school thought of multinationals as evil <laughs> and, and, and as nothing but a mechanism to siphon surplus from low-income countries to high-income countries. Uh, I think one has to be more pragmatic and, and look at them as an opportunity. They have an agenda. You have to have your own agenda. You have to be savvy. You have to invest. And so that is what the point I was trying to get across. Yeah, no, that came across very clearly. 
Um, and I, yeah, as a, as a student, that would have really, I think, helped me to think about um, real paths for development that I would not have seen on my own. Um, but that brings us to one of everyone's favorite topics, or I think outsiders' favorite topics about development economics, which is to talk about foreign aid. You dedicate an entire chapter to this um, and to sort of summarizing the literature and, you know, coming up with ways to think about this. But I mean, for students who are just getting into the field, which is the people who are going to read this textbook as users, um, what is it that you think that that they should know about where foreign aid is now? Well, I think that foreign aid as humanitarian aid does serve a purpose. I think foreign aid as it plugs into the basic human needs approach does serve a purpose. I think that the millennial development goals and the sustainable development goals are something that low-income countries, low-middle-income countries should engage with. But in a sense, they are a red herring. Uh, as Harjun Chang said, uh, this is Hamlet without the prince because development really is about structural transformation. And it's not about meeting basic human needs is in that sense endogenous. It comes once countries attain catch-up growth. If you look at aid, it really is a pittance now compared to even things like remittances, even things like foreign direct investment. So it isn't really as important as the United States, for example. There's a, The public seems to think that the United States gives too much but really it's 0.17 of 1%. Uh, now, in absolute amount, that still is significant because the United States is uh, a huge economy. Um, before the pandemic, it was touching 20 trillion. So 0.17 of 20 trillion is substantive. But it's only the Scandinavian countries that uh, managed to give 0.70 uh, 1% which is what the Pearson Commission recommended for high-income countries. Now, one can get into many details on foreign aid, things like uh, how it is tied, things like, um, uh, but, but as I said before, to some extent it is a red herring and, and it gets much more bandwidth than, uh, much more oxygen than in a sense it deserves in the development field. And one and one that, that's why it's somewhat of a brief chapter, but I thought that the debates really are important. Uh, and I feel that's where we are at the moment. I, I think that one thing that high income countries can do is rationalize a lot more. Um, and and to some extent the sustainable development goals do that. But I feel that they're still way too broad. Uh, if you look at the sustainable development goals, uh, beyond the 14 or so broad goals, then there are sub-goals. And so there are so many things to keep track of. And then you've got bilateral aid and multilateral aid and reporting requirements for all of them. That takes a lot of uh, time. Of um, in, in Pakistan, it's the Economic Affairs Division that reports to foreign donors. And... Uh, you know, the foreign minister of of uh, Afghanistan said, look, it takes almost 60% of my time re reporting to these different agencies. So it, it, it needs to be rationalized. And that's why I feel that if countries can focus on two or three things and do that right, like if they focus just on sustainable agriculture and sustainable industrial development, and that isn't easy. Uh, that will take them a long way. And say, if you're going to give us foreign aid, please, here's where you direct it. Uh, I think it it is very important to simplify. My econometrics teacher was called John Kementa, and he would always say, God is the great simplifier. <laughs> and I think there's some simplification needed uh, in this area, in this topic. I I really um I really love that. Um so while we're on 
foreign aid. And I know that the point of that was that it gets too much attention. But I want to ask you, because this isn't my personal space, but if you, particularly at like the graduate level in the field of economics, a lot of a lot of um, students are going to touch. They're going to work for the World Bank, or as we call it, the bank. They're going to, you know, take OECD contracts. That's partially because I lived in Paris when I was uh, doing my masters. But um, you know, a lot of students actually engage and work in as you know contractors, as employees in these in these larger aid agencies. Um, mm-hmm. What would you like them to? I guess take from that about, you know, how they could make a difference in that space? Or should we think about this as something where, you know, the UNHCR can help refugees and like, you know, there's some space for the World Bank, but not like, it's just not something that donors can can actually instigate development. Like, what should people, you know, going into this field view as, you know, their role or how they could, you know, make a difference? Because a lot of students do this, and I know lots of them, with a real, you know, intent to improve the world, I guess. Yeah, and and I think that is really commendable. Uh, you know, so my daughter took a gap year, and and some students um, do take gap year still. If they want to be in the development field, I would really recommend spend maybe six months. That's why I think the, the Peace Corps is a very important program. Uh, because they immerse themselves. Immersion is not uh, two weeks. Immersion is live there for a little time. And and they'll find that people, no matter which country they choose, low middle um, or or low income country, people are really very hospitable when you go and learn from, are willing to learn from them, living to immerse yourself in that culture. And if, if they want to do good in the development field, I feel they need to understand where people are coming from. And if they could spend some time, even a month, if they can't spend a whole year, I feel that they learn so much. Uh, and I think they, this would give them a very important perspective when, no matter what agency that they subsequently work in, whether it's the World Bank, OECD, um, a USAID or a consulting firm because then they'll know the other and understand and empathize and sympathize with the other. Uh, so so that's what I would recommend. Learn. Uh, sometimes you have such highfalutin theories uh, and, and I feel like, you know, I don't think the scholars actually lived in a low-income country. I don't think the scholar understands what it is to be poor in a low-income country. And I don't actually, but at least I've lived there. And I've tried to immerse myself in that culture. And I've done field work for a lot of my studies where I've at least talked to people. Um, So that's what I'd recommend. That gives people who then will be rich and have a standard of living way, way beyond anything that uh, a poor person in a low-income country can even imagine but it will make them understand what they're dealing with. Um, I think that's really good good advice. Um, there's not much more to say on that, but that that is something that, I mean, I've looked into the Peace Corps myself. I really think it's something that everybody, if you get the chance, should should take. But um, so I now have to ask you about, I think the last main topic um, of the book and, or of the field that is touched in this. And that is to talk about, you know, when you were talking about industrial policy and structural adjustment, you said, okay, we have to assume some basic level of good governance, which, you know, touches us back into Douglas North and Darren Asimoglu and a recently, um, I guess, revived field of institutionalist economics and people who really view development and underdevelopment, um, as you um, point out, as coming from some fundamental set of institutions. Um, would you talk about that school of thought and what it has to teach us and what it maybe fails to explain? Um, these are, this is a difficult topic for me, but I'll, um, 
there's something that when I was uh, reading the um, as Johnson and SMF Blue both that that struck me as as interesting because they did take a historical approach which was which was wonderful and and their view of a theory of underdevelopment was also very interesting because in a sense they viewed predation or corruption as a theory of underdevelopment and so if predation is widely prevalent then why should the general population pitch for catch-up growth? Because you can't have catch-up growth unless you have institutions, as they say, that are broadly inclusive. And, and I think this is a very important insight. But I also feel that You, when you look at uh, East Asian economies, what was the starting point? Is it first to change institutions? Is it first to get better governance? Or is it something else fundamentally different from that? And I guess I, I think that the way, the place I would come from is equity. And I think one thing that these countries had in common. They had many differences in the way they attained catch-up growth, but the one thing that they did seem to have in common was equity. A sense of fairness was imparted to the general population, even though these regimes were fairly autocratic. Um, certainly Korea was, certainly Taiwan was. Uh, but if you look at the Gini coefficients, they were very low. If you look at wage repression, you don't find that. In fact, you find that uh, if you look at the share of income of the top 20% to the bottom 20%, these are some of the most egalitarian societies. In fact, they matched uh, income share ratios and Gini coefficients of the Scandinavian countries. So I think that the place that they came from was equity, investing in basic human needs, education, health, uh, land reform, land they did basic land redistribution. And this then gave a stake to the general population. There was a sense of fairness. Uh, I, I feel that if you're going to break this Gordian knot, it's a, it's a, in some sense, you can say everything is endogenous. Equity is endogenous. Uh, inequality is endogenous. Institutional development is endogenous. But you've got to start somewhere. And I wouldn't start with trying to reform institutions and getting better governance. I'd start by saying reasonably effective government has a dialectical relationship with a reasonable amount of equity in society. I, I think that that is a good place to start. That seems to be the commonality. So that's where I would come from, uh, rather than uh, what you referred to earlier. Perfect. Um, and so now, as we're hitting the one hour mark, I'm going to ask you the traditional last question for all new books, um, episodes in all fields. Um, I know that you're retired. And you probably would like to spend some time with your wife and children and doing whatever you plan to do with your retirement. But are you working on a future scholarship? And if so, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I see my life as a lifetime sabbatical. So research is my passion. It's my hobby. So yeah, that goes on while I spend time with my children and grandchildren and my wife. So I, I don't see that they actually conflict. They all recognize that I have a few hours a day that I devote to, to research. So yeah, that, that's going to, as long as I'm living and breathing and capable, I think I'm gonna keep doing that. I'm working on, on two books at the moment. Uh, one is another course that I taught um, uh, at, at Mount Holyoke College, and that was South, South Asian Economics. 
so so I'm writing a book on that. Um, and I fielded a proposal, so I'm waiting to see what happens. And then I'm writing another book with my brother on collective action. And, and this evolved from field work that we separately did in Pakistan. Um, and, and so uh, we're looking at participatory, participatory development and, and collective action as, as the overarching framework, and then applying this to different sectors, uh, how NGOs uh, engage in development. Uh, we're looking at collective action in the fish fishery sector, the forestry sector. Um, and so that's the other book. And this we're supposed to hand in by the end of this year to Macmillan. So uh, fingers crossed. Uh, that sounds lovely. And um, when it comes out, uh, fingers crossed by the end of the year. I hope you'll come back on the New Books Network and um, talk to us I'd, about it. I, I'd love to. You ask such good questions. This has really been wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, this has been uh, Dr. Khan, um, whose book is Development Economics, A Critical Approach from uh, Taylor Francis. And um, you can get it directly at their website, which is where I get it and have gotten all of my books from them. You can probably also find it on Amazon. Or do you have a favorite local bookstore you'd like to plug? Um, no. You don't have? I, 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 <laughs> I, I okay. don't. Uh, yeah. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, my pleasure. Uh, may, may, uh, Sydney, may I say the title of the book is Development Economics, A Critical Introduction. Uh, yes. Ra rather Sorry. than critical approach. No problem. No. My bad. Okay. <laughs> this okay. way, people who Google it will find it. That is my fault. I get nervous <laughs> when I'm reading off the screen. <laughs>